Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in today. I believe that God's gonna use his word once again to encourage your heart in a special way. If you wanna know more about Shelter Cove, check us out at sheltercovelive.com. But again, I pray that God uses this message to encourage your heart in a special way today. Welcome everybody. I'd like you to take your Bibles, your smart device, and meet me in Revelation chapter 20. Now you may be thinking, wait a minute, this is a Christmas series we're in. Why am I turning to the book of Revelation? Well, this may be a first today. We're going to talk about something very, very exciting. As you're finding Revelation 20, one of the great things about this time of year is the music. Don't you love singing the classic Christmas songs? We do all of the greats. Silent Night, O Holy Night, O Come All Ye Faithful. And one of my favorites goes like this. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. I love those lyrics. I know that song probably means as much to you as it does to me. It's not Christmas unless you hear joy to the world. But let me ask you a question. When Christ was born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, did earth receive him as king? I don't think so. When he was born, did every heart prepare him room? No, he, he didn't even have room at the inn, much less in every heart. Uh, did heaven and nature sing? Did, did nature kind of do a factory reset and go back to Eden level status? And, and that uh, all of the nations just honored him as the song says that he would rule in truth and grace and they all uh, uh, proved his righteousness? No. Have you ever heard verse 3? Of joy to the world, no more let sin or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Are we devoid in this world today of sin and sorrow? Do thorns uh, no longer infest the ground? No, we still have those, don't we? Uh, fresh fruit does not automatically just spring up from the earth. So if we're contending with all of this sin and sorrow and the thorns of the earth, and, and if none of this stuff has really come to fruition, what's the deal with joy to the world? Pastor Scott, why are you ragging on joy to the world? I'm not ragging on joy to the world. I love joy to the world. But what if I told you that joy to the world is not a Christmas song? What if I told you that Isaac Watts, who wrote that song, based it off of Psalm 98, and that that song deals not with the first advent of Christ, but the second. The second coming of Christ. What is he going to do upon his second Coming. He's going to establish his kingdom. The thousand year reign of Christ. That's what we're going to talk about today. And we call that the millennium. You say, well, I thought the millennium was a group of young adults. No, no. And it's not the title of a Backstreet Boys album either. This is the kingdom age that is coming. We're going to discuss that today. Now, this message has a lot of content. It's going to be like drinking from a fire hose, just to give you fair warning. Uh, my normal approach to Scripture is to stay in one passage and walk through it. This is a true topical message, so I'm going to jump around a lot today. There's a lot packed into this. Before we begin, we better pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the promises of your word. I thank you for the truth we find there. Would you please guide us as we discern some of these very uh, inspiring and amazing passages regarding the hope that awaits us, the wonderful life that awaits the believer. Even though we have a wonderful life through knowing Jesus today, God, 
It's a wonderful life that awaits us in the kingdom age. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to ask you to take a look at Revelation 20 with me today. And we're going to talk about the kingdom age. Now let me set up chronologically where this age falls. In the future, before the kingdom age comes, there's going to be a seven-year period of judgment called the tribulation. The tribulation is God's wrath poured out upon the earth. Now, the Bible says that there's never been a time like this and there never will be another time like this and that if this day the tribulation would continue that there would be none left alive. But we know from Scripture that the tribulation does not continue indefinitely, that it lasts only seven years and at the end of the tribulation Jesus will physically return. He will, at the battle of Armageddon, deal with the Antichrist, win victory over him and then there will be a judgment. He's going to take all those who have survived the tribulation, uh, righteous and unrighteous, and we don't know how many that will be. Probably won't be all that many, 100,000 maybe. We don't know. He's going to take them, and the book of Matthew says he's going to divide them as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. He's going to put the righteous on his right hand and the unrighteous on his left. And these he will judge, and they will be sentenced into hell. And these will be judged, proclaimed righteous, and they will be allowed to enter the kingdom age. And we're going to talk about the kingdom. So that sets the stage for us right there. What is this age like? Who's going to be there? Who's not going to be there? What are we going to be doing? What are we not going to be doing? What's the purpose of it all? That's what we're going to answer today. And I'm going to give you several elements of the kingdom age. And if you're following along in the notes that we provide online, uh, the first element of the kingdom is that Satan will be bound and Christ will be visible. Satan will be bound and Christ will be visible. Look at Revelation chapter 20 verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And what comes next is the classic verse on Satanology. It contains all the major titles of the devil. It says that this angel seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Folks, we're going to have a world without a devil. He will not be deceiving the nations. One of the titles we see there is, uh, is uh, that he is a serpent. A serpent is, uh, is oily, like a snake. He is a deceiver. That's what he is. He is also an accuser. That's what devil means, diabolos. Satan, that word means he is our adversary. And this world of the kingdom age will be devoid of that being. He will not deceive anyone. There will be no false religion. There will be no false government. There will be no false media, no fake news. How about that? There will be no false ideologies promoted through corrupt human literature or perverse arts uh, to seduce the populace anymore. All of the evil that we see today is a direct result of the deception and the manipulation of the one that we call Satan. And in that day, he will not be present. Now, there are many people who say that the kingdom age... Well, that's all figurative. It's not really in the future. This whole thousand years thing, that's figurative. What, what it is, is it's symbolic. We're actually going through the kingdom right now. This is the kingdom. Well, I got one problem with that. My Bible says that during the kingdom, Satan will be bound. Take a look around. Folks, is Satan bound? No, no. He's busy. He's very, very busy. That much is clear. But in that day, 
he will be bound. He will not be busy. He will not be allowed to deceive the nations. And not only will Satan be bound, but Christ will be visible. Folks, we're going to be in the kingdom. What do you have in the kingdom? You have a king. And you have a physical king. Jesus will be reigning physically on the earth. He will not be this unseen entity to whom we pray. You won't pray to him in the kingdom because he will be before you. He will be face to face with you. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face in the kingdom. You know, this is prophesied in 2 Samuel. God makes a covenant with King David. He says, your throne will be an everlasting throne. Your house will reign forever. Your descendant will sit on your throne and will rule from your throne forever. Where is David's throne is it in heaven? No, it's on the earth. It's in Jerusalem. Christ will be reigning physically from Jerusalem, seated on David's throne. And not only that, he's going to be reigning from the temple. Zechariah 6.13 says, It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Folks, he's going to be our king and he's going to be our priest and he's going to be in the flesh. That is an amazing thought. What will this day be like? We can't even fathom it right now, but it's going to be something that we've never seen before. He's going to be ruling from the temple. Now, the temple that he's going to be ruling from, there have been many temples throughout history. The first temple was the tabernacle. That's what the Jews uh, carted around with them when they were in the wilderness in between Egypt and the promised land. It was this mobile temple that they set up and took down and the presence of God was with them. When they came into the land, eventually Solomon built the first permanent temple, physical temple. It was glorious. That temple was destroyed by Babylon. Uh, and then the Jews went into exile when they came back. The temple was rebuilt. Zerubbabel rebuilt that temple. Later Herod renovated that temple. It was once again beautiful, but no presence of God was there. And later in AD 70, the Romans came in. They destroyed that third temple. There is a fourth temple today. If you go to Jerusalem, you won't see a temple. There's no physical building. Where is the temple of God today? It's the church. Folks, if you're a Christian, the Bible says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the temple today. Now, one day, Christ is going to return. He's going to take His church, and the temple on the earth today will, be, it will vacate this place. And then the tribulation will begin, that seven-year period of judgment. And the Bible tells us in Daniel that the Antichrist will arise. He will strike a covenant with Israel, and he will permit them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and they will be very excited. But scripture says at the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist will go into that temple and he will install himself as the object of worship. He will defile the temple. It's a desecration. At the end of the tribulation, that temple will have been destroyed. The kingdom age begins, and here we see in Zechariah, Christ will build the new millennial temple. This is the most magnificent of all the temples. Solomon's was glorious. Herod's was beautiful. They pale in comparison to this temple right here. So he will reign from the temple. He will reign from Jerusalem. And what that tells us is that number two in your notes, in this age, Israel will be elevated and systematic worship will be revived. He's reigning from the temple in Jerusalem. 
in Israel. That means all the eyes of the world are going to be on Israel. She will be a focal point. She will be honored among all the nations of the earth because they're going to make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem and Israel will be highly esteemed. Now that's a departure from history. Historically, Israel's been hated. They've been despised. Nation after nation after nation have, have sought her ruin. I mean, just look in Scripture. We see Egypt and the Philistines and the Hittites and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and Greece and Rome. And in the 20th century, the Nazis, they've all wanted her wiped off the map. Incidentally, what do all those civilizations have in common? They're all gone. They've all been reduced to the ash heap of history. Take note, Iran. Be nice to God's people. But in this day, they will be elevated, the Israelites and that land. And what this means is that the people, the Jews who are allowed to enter into that land, God will fulfill his covenant with them. The covenant he made with Abraham to say, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you this land. Folks, all the components of that promise will be fulfilled in that day. God has not forgotten Israel. He has not replaced Israel. You and I as the church are not the new Israel. God will keep his word with her in that day and she will be elevated. And not only that, but there will be a system of worship that is similar to that which we saw in the Old Testament. It's going to be revived. Jesus is reigning from where? The temple. What happens in the temple? Sacrifice. Sacrifice will be done in the temple in the millennial age. Now, a lot of people have a problem with that. They say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Why do we need sacrifices during the millennium? Wasn't Jesus the last sacrifice, the final sacrifice? Look at Isaiah 56. It says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Why do we need sacrifices if Jesus was the once for all sacrifice for sin? Folks, did we ever need sacrifices? Did we need all the sacrifices of the Old Testament? Did they ever atone for sin? No. They pointed ahead to the Lamb who would take away the sin of the world on the cross. They were a picture of the Lamb who was to come. Folks, the sacrifices of the age of the kingdom will point backward to the sacrifice of the Lamb who came and took away the sin of the world. Ritual does not atone. It is always faith in Jesus Christ. Ritual is a picture of what Jesus did at Calvary. We have a ritual at our church. We do it once a month or once every two months. It's called communion. It's called the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. Uh, what are we doing? We're remembering Calvary. We're remembering the atoning work. When we eat that wafer, drink that juice, are we atoning for sin? No. We are demonstrating what he did at Calvary by presenting those elements as his body and his blood laid down for you and I. And this will be a testimony in that day. And it's because of number three in your notes. People will be saved and justice will be done. Did you know that people will be saved in the millennium? Why will people need to be saved in the millennium? You say, I thought only the righteous entered the kingdom. Oh yes, the people who survived the tribulation will be allowed, those righteous will be allowed to enter the kingdom era. But they're going to enter as human beings. They're going to enter as mortals. 
And they will have the ability to marry and to procreate. They're going to have kids. And their kids are going to do the same thing. And those kids are going to do the same thing. After all, we got a thousand years of this, folks. They're going to populate all the nations of the earth. Can you, uh, can you understand that some of those people, some of those children born in that age are going to need to be saved? They're all going to need to be saved. Because they're going to be born with a sin nature. And they're going to need to know what Jesus did on the cross. And so these sacrifices are going to be a testimony. Just as communion gives a picture of what Jesus did, the sacrifices of the, of the millennial era are going to present uh, a picture of Calvary. And they're going to be saved. And not only that, we see that justice will be done. People will be saved and justice will be done. If you look in Zechariah 14, 16, it says that everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. Now, what's that talking about? These are the nations that, that came against uh, Christ at the Battle of Armageddon. What happened to those nations? He destroyed them all. But these are those who survived, meaning they're the righteous. The righteous of those nations that will be allowed to enter the millennium. What does it say? It says that they shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. What is the Feast of Booths? In the Old Testament, you read about it. In Leviticus, there are a number of feasts. You probably know some of them. Passover, Pentecost, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. All right, this is one. In the Hebrew, it's called Sukkot. It is called the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it commemorates... The Jews that were wandering after they fled from Egypt, as they wandered in the wilderness, uh, they lived in these little lean-tos, these little tents, uh, out in the elements. And God provided for them during their wilderness wandering. He gave them manna to eat when they were hungry. He, he allowed water to come forth from the rock when they were thirsty. And when He brought them into the land, this feast was instituted. The Feast of Tabernacles, of Booths. And once a year, all the families of Israel would make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they would set up these little makeshift booths, makeshift tabernacles, and they would live in them for one week. And it was a commemoration. I can only imagine those Jewish children complaining to their parents, how long we got to live in this thing? Well, we're going to be here a week. A week? Can we just go to the hotel? No. No, we are commemorating what God did for our forefathers in the wilderness. We haven't always lived in the land of milk and honey. All right, We wandered and He took care of us. He provided for us. And so we have come in and we're here to honor what He did for our forefathers by bringing us into the kingdom. And in the future kingdom age, all of the Gentile nations will be required to do the same. To come in. The descendants of those righteous Gentiles that were judged and allowed to enter the kingdom, they're going to say, God provided for us. He brought them through the tribulation. And now we are here and we remember what he did by allowing us to come into the kingdom. It's a commemoration and it's a testimony. And when they come, they are going to worship the Lord. And folks, that is salvation. People will be saved because they will worship. Unsaved people don't worship. What does it mean to be saved? It's to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. In that day, they will come to Jerusalem, they will participate in the Feast of Booths, and they will worship. They will see Him, they will confess that He died for their sins, and they will believe in their heart that He rose from the grave because He is standing before them. 
people will be saved. But justice will also be done. Look what it says in verse 17. It says, And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. There'll be no rain. Justice will be done. You look at this, you say, whoa, does, does this mean there will be rebellion in the kingdom? Well, there can be, apparently. You say, well, I thought Satan wasn't operating. Yeah, we have no tempter in that age, but man still has a free will. Man still has a sin nature. I don't know that they'll act on that uh, sin nature, but if they do, when they do, justice will be swift. God will turn off the spigot, and there will be no rain on those families who do not come to Jerusalem once a year. And that means we'll have a perfect justice system. We have a justice system here in the United States. It's probably the best in the world, but it's not perfect. It's not perfect. It takes a long time to work through the justice system. You've got, uh, you've got arrests and arraignments and you've got uh, a court date set and you've got a trial and that could take a long time and you've got sentencing and then you've got appeals and it's a long, arduous process. But the reason that our justice system today is imperfect is because we have imperfect arbiters of justice. They are not omniscient. In that day, we will have a perfect justice system because we will have a perfect judge. And also I want you to see number four element here is that dead saints will be resurrected for that age. Who is going to be reigning during the kingdom? Did you know that the Lord is going to share his reign and rule with certain people? I want you to look at Daniel 12. Here's what it says. It says, at that time shall arise, in verse 1, Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation that at, uh, till that time. Now what's he talking about there? He's talking about the tribulation. Time of trouble such as never has never been. But then he goes on, he says, but at that time your people shall be delivered. Your people, Daniel's people, who is that? Israel. God is going to preserve Believing Israel, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. These are the Jews who finally at long last embrace the Messiah. And then in verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Who's going to be raised at the end of the tribulation? According to this verse, it is those of Daniel's people of Israel who sleep in the dust of the earth. Every Jew of the Old Testament era going to be raised from the dead. Unrighteous and righteous. The unrighteous will be sentenced to hell. The righteous will be raised, glorified, and allowed to reign and rule in the kingdom. So you've got the Old Testament saints resurrected. Who else? What about you and me? You say, what about us? What about the church? What about Christians today? Well, by this point, we've already been raised. You recall 1 Thessalonians 4. Before the tribulation, he will come with the shout of the archangel and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall meet the Lord in the air. We will have been raised. We will return with him at his second coming at the end of the tribulation. And so you've got the Old Testament saints raised after the tribulation. The New Testament saints raised before the tribulation reigning with Christ in the kingdom. Anybody else? I want you to look at Revelation 20, verse 4. It says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. This is proof that when Christ rules, He's going to allow others to rule with Him. Look who 
he's talking about here. He says, Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So we've got three groups of people. Who are these being described here? These are those who come to faith during the tribulation period. They are born again in the tribulation. The Antichrist is going to seek to impose his will on them and force them to be allegiant to him by taking his mark on their hands, on their foreheads, and they will refuse out of allegiance and faith to Jesus. And they will lose their lives for this. They will be beheaded. And these tribulation saints, these martyrs, at this point, before the kingdom age begins, they will be resurrected. And so in the kingdom, reigning with Christ, you've got three groups. Old Testament saints raised after the tribulation, New Testament saints raised uh, before the tribulation, and tribulation saints raised after the tribulation, all reigning with Christ. Now you probably have a ton of questions at this point. Some of you may be wondering, well, so we who are Christians who are going to be resurrected and reigning with Christ, will, will we be marrying? Will we be able to, to be married and to have children in that age? Well, the answer is no. The answer is no. And I know that depresses a lot of you who are singles today. I work with young adults <laughs> and I've taught on the rapture and a lot of them have, have had this look on their face like, man, I, that's awesome, but I hope, I hope he doesn't come back before I get married. I, I got some things I need to do first. You know what I'm saying? Listen, let me just tell you something. You, you as a born again, resurrected saint of the kingdom age will not be married and you will not have, be able to procreate. And that won't bum you out, Okay. Do you remember when the Pharisees came to Christ in Matthew 22 and they tried to trip him up? They said, teacher, uh, imagine there's a woman and, and she's married. Her husband dies. She marries his brother and then he dies and then she marries the next brother. She goes through seven brothers. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? How did Jesus respond? He said two things. First of all, uh, you know neither the scriptures. And then he said, nor the word of God. The power of God, rather. You don't know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. You don't know the scripture because you don't believe in the resurrection. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is clearly life after death. But you don't know the power of God because you're assuming that your needs in an immortal body are going to be the same as your needs in a mortal body. And the truth is that we will be neither, we will not be uh, uh, like we are now, we will be like the angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage. Folks, you won't have a mate in the kingdom, but you won't need a mate. You won't need a mate. Now, for some of you, that's hard to imagine. I can't imagine not being married to my mate in the kingdom. I would guess that there are some of you who are going, come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> because to be married to the person you're married to now for eternity won't seem like heaven, and it's not. All right, but my point is, you'll be complete. Folks, you'll have need of nothing. Not only will you have need of marital relationship, you won't have need of, 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 uh, of sustenance. You won't need to eat. Now, you might eat. You might eat because it's good and pleasurable, uh, but you won't need to. Will you need to sleep? No. No, you won't need to sleep. You'll be glorified. Christ will be your total 
uh, sustenance and provision and you will be satisfied in him. I know that's hard to fathom with your finite fallen mind at this point, but folks, it's going to be a glorious day. It's going to be a fantastic day because we will be raised and we will be reigning with Christ. I know we have a lot of questions. Will Adam have a belly button? I have no idea. But all will be revealed in that day. And then number five, nature will be restored and peace will be established. Isaiah 11 says the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Leopard lie down with a young goat. It says the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Folks, the animal kingdom will, will be no threat to us. There will be no carnivorous activity among uh, creation at this point. It will be a peaceable kingdom. It will be like Eden restored in that day. Uh, there will be no thorns upon the earth as joy to the world uh, tells us in verse 3. Neither uh, thorns uh, shall infest the earth. Folks, you remember what was placed on Christ's head when he was crucified? A crown of thorns. Emblematic of the sin problem that he was going to Calvary to fix. Peace. Peace will be established. Uh, peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. These are concepts associated with Christmas, but the birth of Christ only set in motion the events that would lead to their achievement. Eventually, in the kingdom age, Isaiah 2 tells us, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. We're not going to fight anymore. We're not going to be concerned with killing or power or nation status except for Israel, God's nation. We're not going to be shedding blood. We're only going to be concerned with growing things, with presenting our treasures unto the Lord. And there's a picture of this kingdom that is to come where everything is simplified and glorified. There's a picture. You can look somewhere today where you should be able to get a glimpse of this age to come. There's a group of people. They are not the fulfillment of the kingdom. They're the first fruits of the kingdom. And this is a people that you can look at them. They are ruled by a king. They have a new covenant. They have the word of God. They know they're going to heaven. They love each other, ideally. <laughs> they, there's no seating order with them. You seat everyone together, uh, young, old, red, yellow, black, white, uh, all are precious in his sight, as the song says. And this is a glimpse of that kingdom that is to come. It's meant to be. What are they called? They're called the church. You and I are meant to be a picture of the age to come. Man has longed for utopia, but it's always eluded us. We've sought it. We've never found it. Utopia comes from two words. Topas means a place. EU means no. Utopia is no place. But there's a kingdom that is under a righteous and perfect king. And it's coming. And he will present it to man. And we will be as we are intended to be. Now why do we learn all these things? There's three reasons. We study this. How does understanding our wonderful future life contribute to a wonderful present life? Here's the so what. It's so we can 
be educated. All these various unfulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament pertaining to Christ's reign, they will come to fruition and you need to know that. These are things that God does not want us to be ignorant about. He wants you to know your entire Bible. Secondly, we can be encouraged. We can be encouraged. The rule and reign that we all innately long for, it's at hand. It's coming. That should bear you up as with wings like eagles. Because when you know truth, you can have hope. When you look at this messed up world, you know there's a greater world coming. And you can carry on. And then third, it's so we can be empowered. You're not here for no reason. You're not saved just to ensure your own eternity. You've got a job to do on this earth. And understanding our role as subjects of a coming kingdom, that should motivate us to go out and to recruit additional subjects for that kingdom. You know, this kingdom age that we've talked about, it begins and ends with judgment. You've got that, that initial judgment. And then at the end of it, Scripture tells us in verse 5 of Revelation 20 that everyone will be raised at the end. Everyone who has ever died in rejection of Jesus Christ, and that includes people of our own age who do not believe, one day they are going to be raised from the dead and they're going to be brought before a great white throne. And folks, it's only a formality because their destiny is hell at that point. And the only thing standing before your friends and neighbors who don't know Christ and an eternal hell is you. We got a job to do. The disciples stood with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. They said, are you going to establish your kingdom now? And he said, it's not for you to know the times and seasons. And he ascended. And the angels then said to them, why do you stand here looking into the heavens? He's coming back. We don't know when. But now is the time to share the hope of not only a wonderful present life, but a wonderful future life that comes from knowing Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great and precious promises of your word that you have gone away to prepare a place for us and that you will come again to receive us unto yourself that where you are, we may be also. But God, there are those who don't know you. And God, I would pray that we'd be encouraged by what you have spoken truthfully in your word, that we would Use it as fuel for our mission. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.